Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. I'm Mike Boris and this is Straight Talk. So there's there's always a story behind a story, right? So, you know, just trying to get a bit, a bit of an understanding. Floods, fires, pandemics unpredictable gangsters. New South Wales Police Commissioner Karen Webb has taken on a difficult job. If your personal values are no longer aligned to the organisational values, then it's time to find another job. If there's people out there that just go, I'm not going to do the job because she's female, there's a gap then between their personal values and the organisational values. So, Why did it take so long for this guy to get arrested thinking I, that? You know, I can understand, particularly for the families. You know, they, they want answers, you know, all families and those circumstances do. Any victim of crime wants, wants answers and resolution, but we're dealing with criminals who, you know, think like criminals. The relationship between the public and police is fractured. We debriefed, I guess you could say, some potential recruits about why they're not pursuing their interest to join the police. And one was that they didn't like what the police did during COVID. And the other was around um, Black Lives Matter. So there's a couple of things that have actually affected our appeal, which is, you know, something we have to grapple with. I mean, one of the things that always concerns me is potential for peripheral damage from these gang wars as an innocent bystander. There's rhetoric that, oh, you know, they're only shooting themselves, but there is always a risk. They're very public these days. Some of them are, you know, in gyms and public places and, you know, it just confounds me that they're so brazen. Is that something that keeps you awake? Of course it does. Commissioner Karen Webb, welcome to Straight Talk. It's great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. You don't mind if I call you Karen? Go for it. So who is Karen Webb? Where did she come from? So country girl, grew up in the country, born in the country, educated in the country and then moved to the city uh, when I finished my HSC, got work, studied and, you know, so it went from there. But really my my roots are still in the country in a way. My family is still in the country. Um, You know, I've got ties to that place and it's still called that home in many ways. But been, I've lived in Sydney now, in and out of Sydney, but back in Sydney for probably longer than I did in the country. So I should count myself as a city girl, but can't quite do that. Well, that's interesting in itself from my point of view. Um, which part of the country are you from the bush or are you from a farming um, uh, So we community? just lived on the outskirts of town, but it's a small town. So 1,200 people, um, southwest slopes of, of uh, New South Wales. So in a small town, you've got to, you know, learn to make the most of what you've got around you, uh, which interestingly now I think that put me in good stead. You know, I grew up, I'm only girl in a family of boys, all boys in the street. You learn to fit in with the boys or you don't do anything. Um, and you don't have all the resources that you'd have in a big big town or a city. So, you, you know, make your own fun and work out your own issues. So when you were a kid, did you like police people? I didn't really have any involvement with um, the local police officers. We had two in the town. 
Um, their kids went to school and that's as really as much as I'd had to do with them until I um, was old enough to get my driver's licence and back in the day, it's a few years ago now, uh, you had to go to the local police station to do your driver's test and they'd issue your licence on behalf of the RMS. Um, and so the police officer there, just a lovely guy and just instantly felt, you know, a warmth and comfort around him, even though he was big in stature, just and he said, I've seen you drive around. I know you can drive. We'll go for a drive and I'll ask you a few questions. And But I just thought right then at that instant he just had that way of connecting with people and, you know, I, yeah, rapport even though even fleetingly. But I just thought if that's what a police officer is and I want to be a part of that. It's like old school. It is. Old school policing. Yeah. And certainly in a country town there's probably some old school policing in the city which we don't want to repeat but that's the sort of old school policing that the community wants to see yep. and that's something that impressed upon you that perhaps that you might have considered a career as a police person at that point? Yep, at that very point. At that until, point? At that point. Oh, wow. Up until then I thought about being a, t- a school teacher. Like I knew you'd have to leave the town. There's no employment for women necessarily unless you, you know, stayed on the land or something. Yeah, that was the turning point. So that was I set my sights on it then. And well, How old were you then? Uh, 16, 17, I think. When that's you get pretty to, determined. Yeah, yeah. Are you a determined sort of person? Like mm, can be, <laughs> but uh, like <laughs> not you, stubborn, determined. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that, well, there's a difference. Um, stubborn can be a bit silly at sometimes. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, you know, you're a bit irrational, but determined means that you you decided that no matter what, you're going to pursue a career as a police person. Yeah, and which I knew meant that I'd have to move to Sydney, and um, even though training was in Goulburn, but set yourself up to be in Sydney and start the process of applying. Back then, I'm talking 1987, there was a bit of a queue to join the police and so I, I worked in the meantime while I did all my tests and went through the recruitment um, days, et cetera, and then got the phone call and said, you know, you're in the next class basically and so, okay, off I go, off so to go on. how many women would have been joining the police force in those days? Uh, so 10%. I think there were 20 in my class of 200. Yeah, 10% yeah. intake. Yeah. And what was it like being in Goulburn? Uh, my cousin was down in Goulburn. I heard lots of stories about Goulburn. Um, <laughs> what was it like down in Goulburn? In the, that's the well, where the police go and do their extra academy. Yes. Yep. And it's been there for you know, 37 years now, I think. But um, Burua, where I grew up, is actually not that far from Goulburn. So in terms of climate, you know, sort of familiar with it. I went there in May and attested in August. So I lived Goulburn climate for um, three months. But quickly realised that you're in a group of 200 people all in the same boat, came from everyone's different stories, backstories and different walks of life, but you're all there for a a purpose and you make friends and, you know, I'm still friends with some of those people today. So you just get in because you're like we've got to support each other getting through the academy. We supported some getting through their exams, some getting through their physical fitness just to make sure we all walked off or marched off that parade ground on the 7th of August. And do you think at that point... Back when you were at the, coming out of the academy, do you think you felt as though there was equivalence between male and female? It doesn't matter whether you're male or female. You're all there for a certain purpose, objective. Yeah. Was there equivalence? Did yeah. you feel equivalence in yourself? Uh, I think, um, you know, I think the, the point I made earlier about grew up in a family of boys and a community of boys, I actually didn't see gender. So when I joined the police and there were actually 20 females, that was a lot for me <laughs> in a funny sort of way. So I didn't have anything to benchmark it against and say, oh, that's not many or that's a lot. Um, it was just it was a fact and we, the girls 
lived in a ta- one tower or two towers and the boys were separate. We were all segregated and so was it was actually an interesting thing for me to form relationships with, with females that I hadn't really done before. So, and like, like I said, you know, made lifelong long friends and, you know, it was a really good experience but, you know, we'd all, um, as I said, pitched in, helped each other, had some fun, you know, just supported each other through it. And I thought, you know, they're, they're really important values, particularly in for a job like this where teamwork and working together is so important that you need to trust each other. And so that's, I guess, the good thing about Goulburn, although it's cold and awful sometimes, that you're out of your normal um, social network and cocoon and you've got to establish new relationships and form those bonds where you have to rely on and trust other people. The interesting thing about your job too is that you're effectively the CEO of one of the biggest organisations in New South Wales, or probably Australia, in terms of numbers of people, probably in terms of budgets and every other thing and in terms of importance as well. But most CEOs get drafted into the role of CEO. Very mm. few start from, in your case, <laughs> right at the very bottom, mm. that is at the academy. And having those relationships and sort of understanding those relationships and helping each other get through the process of passing your exams mm. so that you can become a, a probationary constable or whatever they call them. Is that what they call yeah. them? Yeah, yep. probationary constable, which sort of indicates to me that we're still, we're still watching and we might turf you out if you don't do the right thing. Or toe the line, um, that that's that's pretty powerful in terms of where you are today. I mean, given where you are today, mm. do you ever look back and say, "Yeah, I understand what's going on there. I get it. You know, I see how they, you know, how competitive it is. What they've got to do to pass these exams. How important it is to have culturally everybody sort of trying to help each other through the process." Yeah, I think it is. I go down to the academy before each parade, passing out parade, and talk to the students. So they're all nervous and excited and they've made it, right? So they're ready to march out the next day in front of their families and throw their hats in the air and they'll become a police officer. But it's important for me, I get as much out of that as whether they get anything or not, but, you know, they get a chance to hear from me and what my expectations are, my, my chat about values and, you know, that their values need to be aligned to our values, et cetera. But it's good for me to go back and just see them, those bright faces and think, you know, that's where I started. We all started there and we, you know, grew up in this organisation, um, went on different paths, you know, different directions, but we all share the same purpose. It doesn't matter whether you're a probationary constable or a commissioner. And what I say to them is the community looks at you as a leader. They don't know that you're a probationary constable or, or that I'm the commissioner. They might because I'm older, but they still look at you as a leader and they look to you for guidance and leadership when they need it. So rank really doesn't matter. I've got responsibility as a CEO, but each officer has responsibility as a you know leader in their community. What do you think the community thinks the police officer's purpose is? Well, I think keeping our community safe, but keeping our community safe often is not just you know locking up the bad guys. You know that's part of it, of course, but preventing crime. You know we want to prevent crime and we want to stop people being victims of crime and whether that's stop houses being broken into or cars being stolen or prevent domestic violence. I mean, that's that's the ultimate really. If we can prevent crime, then we're all in a good place as a society. Uh, but certainly, you know, we've got a role to be peacekeepers, you know, in our communities. But we, but I also say we, we are members of our community. We just happen to wear a blue shirt. And it probably goes even more these days, a little bit beyond it, because we've had bushfires and we've had floods. Yeah. I mean, I just know what I look to the police for 
as looking at an officer. I mean, it could be any number of things at any one particular sure. time could be different. Yeah. Um, not just to keep me safe or mm. keep the, you know, bad guys off the street mm-hmm. or girls, bad, bad people off the street. Mm. Um, but it could also be, be just a helping out when there's a flood like up in Lismore recently. Exactly, yeah. I think that's the thing and I often say and you mentioned, you know, we're a big organisation, you know, 22,000 staff covering, you know, a population of 8 million in New South Wales but we're a 24-7 agency, frontline agency. So we're often, you know, there, um, my officers are there middle of the night and respond to those things, um, you know, so we are Johnny on the spot and we, we do what we have to do. You know, it's all part of keeping people safe, but in in, in those circumstances, in a different way. It's that's a that's a good way to describe the police, a frontline agency. Yeah, it's it is an agency, mm-hmm. um, and you could describe the AMBA as the same, and the fire mm-hmm. is the same. They're frontline agencies to do a specific job. And as a, if you just took the police moniker away, and if you look at it the way you're running a business, you're running you're the CEO of a frontline agency. Yeah, that's there to perform a specific task relative to the community. You've got 22,000 people work for you, work under you, mm-hmm. work within your environments. Yeah. Um, how do you manage 22,000 people? I mean, like that's – I mean, I've got like a couple of thousand people. I've, I've, I find it like near impossible. Um, how do you do 22,000 people? I think, you know, being um, an organisation with a structure, I've got to rely on the structure and use those – the ranks in between. So we've got, as you mentioned, you know, probation is right up to commissioner – and there's ranks all every step of that way and you just have to use your structure and that line of command and, you know, things take care of themselves in that respect. And I guess like most CEOs, you know, that I've got a senior executive that I work with um, and I've got a top 200 that we engage, I engage with um, to talk about the priorities so that the messaging is consistent and um, but they've got a job to do. You know, it's not my job to overstep and I, I think that's, you know, Managing that too is important that I don't, you know, usurp the responsibility of my deputies or my assistant commissioners or anyone else and just use the structure that's there. These days yeah. um, the structure can wag the dog sometimes um, because, you know, you've got to – I know I'm, I'm in my case, I mean I'm the sort of CEO of my organisation and once upon a time I could sort of say to them, you do this, you do that, you do this and expect it to be done. And if it wasn't done, then I could sort of issue consequences. Um, I could still do the same today, but then there's always blowback consequences to me these days because you've got to be much more, let's call it sensitive towards mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. Um, the people in your organisation be largely men, mostly men I'd say. How difficult is that for them to not be issued but to be standardised and expect a level of a, a certain standard by a fem- first fem- female in, what, 160 years or something 190, like that? I think. 190 years. Yeah. So, so h- how difficult is that? I, I don't, I actually don't think about it. I just think about the job I've got to do. I've never made my my role about my gender. It just happens that I happen to be a female and, you know, with that I'll bring something different. Um, but really, you know, the organisation, as I said, the structures work, the, you know, there may be people out there that, that, go, oh, she's a female and I'm not going to listen to anything she says. Um, I actually haven't heard that and, you know, it would be I, – I do say to officers, whether they're probationers and, you know, my executive, if your personal values are no longer aligned to the organisational values then it's time to find another job. So if, if there's people out there that just go, oh, 
I'm not going to do the job because she's female. And, you know, there's a gap then between their personal values and the organisational values. So that's a different conversation. But I don't think it's I, – I haven't I haven't seen it. Um, I've been, you know, I really enjoy going out to the field, being out to Broken Hill and up north and out in the suburbs. And I try and get out and walk the ground because I like to do a, a temperature check, I guess, of the culture of place and how people are going um, – you know, personally and understand, you know, what's what's their day look like, what's what's on their mind, what makes their job difficult. Um, and that's not that I'm not confident I don't hear that from those above them. But I think it's important for me to stay in touch with what matters to them. So I've certainly been, you know, well received and, you know, it's been a great, been great to go out there and talk to the men and women right across the organisation. You know, stay in touch is probably one of the most important parts of culture and people within yeah. an organisation, not just staying in touch with the people who have a direct feed to you but also getting beyond that mm-hmm. because you want to know what everybody else is actually thinking as opposed to just being fed. Mm. So that's a good way to, I think, a good way for me anyway. It's a good mm. way for me to run my organisation. One thing I do know is when you come into an organisation that pre-existed before you, um, Generally speaking, you've got to get some of your own people involved. Mm. You know, people. Well, more important, people you trust, mm-hmm. people who know that you've they've got your back, mm-hmm. and in terms of your values and what you want to achieve in relation to the organisation. And by the way, you either live by the sword, you die by the sword. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. if you've got the mm-hmm. wrong values, then mm-hmm. you won't mm-hmm. make it. Mm-hmm. So, how's that process like? What was that like going when you first got appointed? You, you've obviously got predecessors and they've got predecessors and there's, you know, sometimes police stay there for 40 years. Yeah. They've been under three or four different commissioners. Yeah, yeah. Um, Whether they knew them or liked them or not, it doesn't matter. How do you go through the process? Do you, is that a daunting thing when you walk into the room like that? Uh, I would, not for me. Like I think my early years just prepared me well. But I think I often say and I live by it, it's I'm not dealing with, I deal with the issue. So not the person, but if I'm, it's like who's got the best skills for what I need, the organisation needs right now and bringing that team together. And so, you know, I've moved deputies around, I've moved assistant commissioners around and I've moved superintendents around and that's not about I'm moving someone because I don't like them or for whatever reason it's about we sit down as an executive and have the discussion about what's needed in the organisation right now um, some of those movements and discussions are about what does that individual need for their own development if they're, you know, future potential leaders or, or, or whatever it is. So I'm actually trying to strike that balance about what's the operational needs, what does what does the organisation need and what how do I develop my people. So my job is to lead, is to develop the next team who's going to come in behind me. Yeah, like you mean your successor. Yeah, and the team behind that. So I think it's part of incumbent on me to get as many people ready as I can. And in, in terms of your board, which is sort yep. of the minister, yeah. how, what's your interaction with the minister? Like, I mean, how often do you meet the minister? Yeah, if, like once, as often as we need to, but every couple of weeks we have a catch-up. But, you know, there's usually something we have to talk about. And you have to, do, <laughs> and you have to meet the Premier as well? Yeah, not so often, but I think it's like a, a structure. Like he's, he's the CEO of government and I don't have to go bypass my minister to go to him yeah, necessarily. Yeah. So... I do talk to other ministers just depending on what the issues are. So during COVID we, we had a lot to do with the health minister and so it's really on, what's on a needs basis. I can't remember now but so 
COVID hasn't finished, but like yeah. when COVID sort of finished about, you got appointed, it was the beginning of this calendar year? Yeah. yeah. So let's say COVID was sort of finished. What did you learn from observing how your predecessor dealt with the whole COVID crisis in a political sense? Because there, there are politics involved in these things yeah. and ministers for health and premiers yeah. and every day standing in front of the bloody media and, yeah. you know, have to deal with the media as well, which is, I can imagine, be pretty difficult. Um, and expectations that are built about where the police sit in this when, in fact, the police aren't really doing anything. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. really a health issue. Yeah. Tough. I don't envy him at all. <laughs> and it was a tough time, you know, and un- I know that word's used and overused, but it's true, unprecedented. Like we've, the previous one was 100 years ago, so you couldn't benchmark against anything. And it was evolving, you know, every day there was a new health order or every second day and so we had to adapt and that that was hugely challenging, I imagine, you know. So we just had to, you know, you know, work as a team to, to right, circle around, what are we going to do now? How do we respond to this? How do we, you know, engage our workforce, communicate to our workforce and then manage? He spent, you know, a lot of time managing the stakeholders and we had to then mobilise the workforce. Yeah, because, but it's quite, um, I'd imagine it's quite, uh, because one of the stakeholders is, that makes it more challenging is the media. So managing the media is probably a full-time nearly a full-time role for somebody. Yeah. You have media managers, yeah. people who advise yeah. your media. Um, most people would know this, but, like, what's that that interaction between you and your media advisor relative to the media? Like, do you interact with these people every day? And say, oh, Commissioner, there's a problem. <laughs> you know, we got uh, Channel 7 at the door or something. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, and that's, you know, the job of Alex and others in the media unit to help understand, you know, there's usually a, backstory and there's something going on so just you know understand what the issue is and what what we you know what our position is what the concerns are so there's there's always a story behind a story right so you know just trying to get a bit, a bit of an understanding because yeah. the, because the integrity of the police relative to the community is pretty important yeah and there's always an issue especially these days there's always yeah. an issue as you know in, in indigenous deaths in, mm-hmm. whilst incarcerated uh you know then you get the you know, the particular politicised and media-driven sort of stories around someone who might have committed, committed a crime, whether it's gang crime or something like that, and they all reflect on the integrity of not only you but the whole police force. And is part of your role to protect that integrity? It is. You know, that, I did say recently, um, you know, there's a, you know, a lot of pressure you know, there's been a serious crime, you know, why isn't it solved yet? And I said, I said, it's not CSI. You know, these things, not for lack of will. You know, I've got detectives, fabulous investigators and officers working literally around the clock and, you know, trawling through every piece of evidence, CCTV, ballistics, you know, forensic evidence, you name it, and they are doing enormous amount of work and it just takes time. These things just take time. But they're getting amazing results and I think today there will be another arrest for a murder, you know, they just that the reality is it takes time to do it properly and to be able to make sure that it goes before the courts and, you know, hopefully successful at, through the court process. Do you think, I mean, maybe you're, you know, you've experienced this yourself, but do you think that our community is justified sometimes in saying, where the hell, why did it take so long for this guy to get arrested for something he did in relation to, um, 
an individual, in case I'm talking about the Dawson case mm-hmm. in relation to his wife, mm-hmm. um, for which he got convicted, how come it took so long? I mean, do you see the I, rational sense in that yeah, of the community I, thinking I, that? You know, I can understand, particularly for the families. You know, they, they want answers, you know, all families in those circumstances do. Any victim of crime wants wants answers and resolution, you know, and that's uh, – that's obviously been a complex matter. That wasn't wasn't straightforward, and you know, it, there's been a conviction, but we just got to be mindful where there's going to be an appeal, and we have to, you know, careful what we say around yeah, that. Totally. But, um, you know, the police officers equally, you know, would love to resolve matters much sooner, you know, but we're dealing with criminals who, you know, think like criminals, and we don't think like criminals. So we, you know, sometimes you've got to put all those things together and. Um, try different types of investigative strategies and, you know, f- difficult. I mean, the Dawson case, as you, as you know, and there's new legislation going before Cabinet this week, I think, around nobody, no parole type of thing, you know, because families want answers. Um, and without a body, that makes it even harder because you've got no uh, forensic evidence to work with. So they're very, very complex and, you know, there are they happen, but we're pretty, you know, tenacious and that one's, you know, going, has gone well. Because, I mean, I guess to some extent the beyond all reasonable doubt burden that the prosecution, which is the police, yes. well, not the police but it, well, it sort of but is the police, just, yes, just. you have that obligation to mm. prove that mm. to the, either the jury or mm. the judge, mm. um, is a pretty heavy burden of proof. It is because you've basically got to show that every other possible viable you know, explanation is not viable. Mm. So it's not just saying, well, that's, here's the evidence to show that. You've almost got to discount every other as well because that would be, you know, used in in their defence. So it's actually, that's what makes it complex. You've actually got to go about disproving or, or evidence contrary to the other theories. Which means you've got to build a whole lot of evidence, both that contradicts whatever the defence's um, position will be, but also makes it clear that this individual had the intent to commit the crime, the means to commit the crime, mm. and that's why the body part's important, did commit the crime mm. in the case of, say, murder, for example. Um, so therefore, is are you saying, do you think that today that the burden of proof is so heavy with so many possibilities, you know, that you have to deal with, mm that therefore it does take 20 years, 30 years, or just a bloody long time to get stuff, the evidence. Yeah. And it has to be really well got it put does. together. It does. Yeah, I think there's a few things in that. I think, and I had five years in for our forensics area, so I got to understand it when CSI, the, the TV show, was, you know, popular, that it did change community's expectations that crime could be solved in an hour. You know, there's all of this technology and we identify DNA and fingerprints and all, you know, put the offender at the crime scene, that's all done. And I think that helped shape community that they expect more and more quickly. Um, technology does exist, not necessarily always in Australia and, it, it, you know, we sometimes we've got to send evidence overseas and that all takes time. Um, but we do have to work methodically through it. So the more evidence that could be available, the more time it takes to analyse. So all the CCTV, all the other um, technology advances, all of that has to be ingested and made sense of. And at the moment it's it's still a manual process. We've got officers that have got to spend hours and hours and hours going through every CCTV footage, 
from a crime scene. Or- I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Around a crime scene, an expanded crime scene, to see if there's anything they can get from that that could be um, evidence. So it's does take time. So in other words, the technology actually creates the time. It does because, actually increases yeah. the burden and expectation. Yeah. And there's more and more of it and more layers, but then there's the tools to analyse all of that are not, not as really available to ingest it and just turn it through a machine. Yeah, so once yeah. the crime's commi- being committed, mm. the evidence which is being gathered either through technology or otherwise um, is so great and can easily be discounted in a case by a good barrister mm-hmm. because they just have to say, well, put some doubt on that, there's some doubt around that, that it does actually take a lot more time. Yeah. But given, and I understand that part, but given that the that's when the crime's been committed, what about the evidence, though, that you can now collect before a crime's committed? Mm-hmm. In other words, preventing big drug deals or mm-hmm. um, preventing a gangland murder because, you know, there's a lot of stuff in the media about this stuff at the moment. Mm-hmm. I mean, is there is there more? Do you have more tools available today than you have had in the past? And is it more? We're getting more. In fact, I think cabinet passed some more legislation yesterday, so or today maybe, um, which will be useful. So we're always trying to keep up. You know, criminals don't use the normal bounds of law and legislation that we you know we have to use. So they're well ahead of the game and they're well resourced to advance their causes in many different ways. But we've got to catch up. And that that sometimes requires legislation to make sure that we can get evidence legally then to catch up to them. It's always um, confounding me, but why do you think criminals are so smart? Like, um, I mean, like they seem to be one step ahead technologically and one step ahead all the time. Like, well, uh, I think you know they. What we're seeing is that they're they're global networks now, and so they've got access to technology overseas or, or resources overseas. You know, they're very well organised these days. Um, and like I said, we've got, we need led, we need law to actually access the things that they're, you know, innovating uh, just to keep up to them and we are but it just takes time unfortunately. I mean one of the things that always concerns me is is the peripheral potential for peripheral damage from these gang wars as an innocent bystander. Mm. Is that something that keeps you awake? Of course it does. Absolutely it does, you know, and... There's rhetoric that, oh, you know, they're only shooting themselves, but that's, that's you know, you can't say that. And there is always a risk. And I've said publicly that um, they're very public these days. Some of them are, you know, in gyms and public places and, mm. you know, it just confounds me that they're so brazen. Um, 
that, that they're just willing to take that risk because of the high stakes. Um, but we've got to take that incentive away. And most of the incentive, you know, is around money. And money's either drugs or some other commodity that's of value. So we've got to chip away at that. The motive, you know, often it's about the motive. It's interesting because I mean, if I go back 20, 30 years, the old school crooks um, just stuck with themselves and generally speaking, just move out of their own environments. Mm. Um, and you wouldn't, you might see a few flashy round, ones around Double Bay, but you sort of knew they were. They might have the jewelry or some of the fancy car. Um, when I was a kid at the time or a young man at the time. But today, they don't stick to themselves. They're a lot more dangerous because they don't care who they affect, in what part of the community they affect it, just to get their outcome. Is that a noted change in criminology? I suppose. I suppose. I'm not sure what the you know the academics would say about it, but certainly as a veteran of 35 years, you know, as a detective, we'd be happy back in the day to get ounces of drugs in a you know of drug dealers, etc. And now we're finding, you know, we're talking tons um, because Australia is a demand market, but they're well organised, and then I think their model, business model has adapted to go, you know. There's a big urn if we just do it differently. So some of those rings we've smashed and um, operate, you know, strike for sugarcane and all of those, that wasn't selling bulk. It was selling uh, regularly to same to, across the network um, every day. So their business model was a, just a, you know, pyramid model um, but works very successfully until we, we got stuck into them. But they've certainly matured around how to do business um, and it's, it's not just about, you know, hang around in your own group anymore. I think they cross-pollinate, they come together um, for mutual benefit. Which sort of makes sense. I mean, yeah. that's that's yeah. that's in a business sense yeah. if, if you can yeah. justify the business, but it sort of makes sense. Yeah. And it's interesting, you're, you're the CEO of an organisation out there to uh, bust these organisations. Their job is to beat you. And to some they're extent... They're not necessarily trying to beat me, they're just trying you, to do but, business. But the police. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because you're, yeah. you're the biggest... Um, imposition yeah, in terms true. of their success. We get in their way, yeah. And, and how do you think you're going? I mean, do you think the I, I police think we're are doing, doing well? I think we're doing well. But like I said, it does, I'm just amazed at, you know, how big a consumer market New South Wales is for drugs. Mm. You know, that does surprise me. You know, we did a, an operation, Operation Fume last weekend, which was targeting uh, drug and drunk drivers, and one in 17 drug tests were positive. So that's across all of New South Wales. One in 17. One in 17. So, you know, that's, that's you know, frightening really. So we're not talking about, you know, a particular demographic. It's much broader now and I think, um, you know, other organisations do wastewater testing and, you know, you can profile communities by the types of drugs that are in the wastewater and different communities use different drugs but they're all illegal drugs. These are just the illegal ones. This is, this is not anything to do with someone that might be mixing, you know, and taking prescribed drugs uh, wrongly. This is the illegals. So, you know, heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine, cannabis, one in 17. When it's so large, because I've heard stories where Australia is one of the most expensive places in the world to buy, say, cocaine. Mm -hmm. Therefore, it must become a very attractive market for those who export and those who import from exporters yeah. to Australia. But also we got heroin and methamphetamine and marijuana and everything else that mm. there is out there. How does the police decide which areas are going to be 
because you can't do everything. Which areas are we going to go for? We're going to go for the people down in um, in the city there who are buying an ounce of hash or whatever it is they're mm. buying in Chinatown or <laughs> down where the movie theatres are, something like that, or are we going to go for the big guys? I mean, how, how do you make those calls? I think there's a bit of everything in that. You know, you've got to – we're after the suppliers, but sometimes you, you've got to start low-level suppliers and work, work your way up and other times you can, you know, come straight in at the – the top, but if there's there's multiple layers. Obviously, like I said, it's almost like a pyramid. So there's the dialer dealer style networks that make an earn, but there's someone above them that's making a bigger earn, and someone above them. So from right from the importation, and that's the work that we do with our federal counterparts, right down to you know grassroots supply. I mean, we're concerned about the suppliers. You know, that's our area of focus. If you're in a country like um, I don't know, I think it's Sweden, Ramsey, one of those sort of places where they said, look. From now on, this particular drug is not going to be illegal. Mm. What does that do? Is that a relief? You know, well, we'd have to we just go for murderers and we'll go for yeah. robberies. I, and- I actually haven't had a look at what that's, how that's worked for them and what it looks like. I mean, it does pose a lot of concerns for communities. You know, how do you, even my workforce, you know, how do you say it's it's legal but then they've got to turn up to work and not be drug affected and um you know, what does it do to individuals, you know, around causing psychosis or schizophrenia and all those sorts of things. So it's a big question and I think it's been going around for years and, you know, I'm not, I think, you know, I just say to our people, you know, we've, our job's to uphold the law and the current law says that, you know, it's it's an offence, like I said, but our, our focus is suppliance. I'm, you know, not necessarily, you know, I know people use drugs and it's against the law but, it's the people that are making money off other people that concerns us. Yeah, so the I- illegal sale of something that's not regulated. Yeah. So that, I, I think that's sort of sort of where I was going to. Does Karen Webbin and all your senior management team, how do you not make a moral judgment and just say, or an ethical judgment and just say, look, my job is to uphold the law and this is the current law, irrespective of how I feel about it. Um, I mean, a good example is domestic violence. Domestic mm-hmm. violence has become a big issue. Mm-hmm not only in terms of being committed but much more awareness around it and now there's a lot more offences in relation to it, like a lot more law around it, whereas 30 years ago probably no one ever talked about it and just happened and it got hidden. Mm -hmm. Um, How do you balance up your ethics and your morality with the legislation, whichever way it moves? Yeah, and that's that's the point I made earlier about if your personal values are no longer aligned, like if you can't do your job because you've got a difference of opinion about a certain issue, then... There's, there's got to be a parting of the ways, you know. And we even had police officers that I think it was some proposed mining up north and, you know, they had families that owned the land and, you know, so they had a personal view about it but they had a job to do to stop protests and things and that puts them in a difficult position. But I just say we've, you've just got to do your job um, and just, you know, do it ethically and, um, you know, so some people do get vexed. Well, COVID is a good example. Yeah. When people yeah. get, well, not so much mm. in this state, but in other states, like yeah. Victoria, people getting arrested left, right and centre. And we saw a lot of stuff around that. Mm. Um, as a leader of the organisation, I mean, how do you talk to your people about that sort of stuff? Yeah, I think it is it is interesting you talk about that because we debriefed, I guess you could say, some potential recruits about you know, whether they join the police or want to join the police or why they're not pursuing their interest to join the police. And there were two answers, you know, one was that they didn't like what the police, meaning 
don't know whether it's New South Wales or just Australia broadly, uh, what police did during COVID, which was interesting. And I don't know whether that was, you know, didn't like us standing around guarding hotels or or was, you know, arresting mums and dads for not wearing face masks. And the other was around um, Black Lives Matter. Um, so there's a couple of things that have actually affected our appeal, I suppose, which is, you know, something we have to grapple with because we need to understand why people don't want to join and then, well, how do we remedy that, remedy that and reconcile that? And now that, you know, thankfully COVID's, you know, becoming normal and we're living with COVID, then how do we, you know, attract people back? It's interesting. I mean, just if I give you one example, during the COVID period, when it first, when that very first guy, the driver dude, um, contracted it, yes, um, he went to a cafe in Vaucluse and uh, I was actually going to my farm and uh, on the way to the airport I stopped into that particular cafe. On the very day that he was there, I bought a cup of coffee outside because I was in a hurry to go to the airport and then went to the airport. Um, I was only going to the farm for a day, came back that night and the next morning I got a phone call from an odd number with an American accent or Canadian accent as it turned out. I didn't answer it because I thought it might have been one of those weird yeah. calls. So um, then I, and I just, and it rang me three or four times. I just didn't, I'm not going to answer because I don't know the number, I don't know the accent. Then the some police from Rose Bay, a, a guy and a girl, two constables coming, and they knocked on my gate and uh, I said, yeah, who's that? Because my dog started barking. Actually, an ex-police dog out of Menai, yeah. which I rescued. Yeah. Um, Good, thank you. Because yeah, he, he <laughs> failed the uh, slippery floor, floor test. Oh, and uh, the, the uh, guy in charge of my knew said, oh, mate, you can have his dog. Yeah. Well, I paid for him, I should say, but I yeah. uh, didn't have him. I had to yeah. pay him. No. But, um, but anyway, I'm happy to rescue him. But my dog was going mental and they obviously <laughs> just not going to go very gingerly. I said, yeah, who's that? What do you want? And so I went from Rose Bay Police. And I said, hey, what do you want? And they said, um, oh, You've been getting a call from New South Wales Health, I think whatever it's called. And I right. said, oh, yeah. And I, Contract taste. So I said, just come down here yeah. and let me come and talk to you. Turns out that New South Wales Health had found out my details because I pay by credit card and they got mm. my okay. mobile number right. from my bank. Wow. Um, and uh, which I, you know, I thought the bank should tell me, but and uh, they were, they were actually ring me. So and the lady just happened to be Canadian accent. That's all. And that's what, she was just actually saying to me, I had to go and get a, a, a PCR test, what it was at the time. Yeah. And um, but the but I, just to say, the two, the two constables were very nice. They, yeah. they they knew it was a bit of a hassle. Yeah. But they said, look, you know, we they got a, a call. Can you just yeah? Can you just give them a call, Mark? Sure. They, I don't know if they call me Mark, Mister Brosby. Can you just give them a call? Yeah. And uh, and it'll be all okay. And I was happy enough to give him a call. No dramas. Yeah. And then one, once I knew what was going on. Yeah. So in terms of um, just perception, is that it's probably the way police you deal deliver with a message. Yeah. 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 And uh, they were young people. I'm an older dude, so they probably thought, "Well, oh, just be respectful to the older bloke," you know. Um, it just they were just two young cops, though. That's yes. the way I saw it, yeah. doing their job. Yep. And uh, there was no barging no. in or. No knocking down the bloody gate or anything like that or, you know, threatening to arrest me. They were just very nice. And I thought, well, that's okay. It's cool. Yeah. Um, that's to me is the way I see it. But then again, people from the west of Sydney during the COVID period, and it was pre-your period mm-hmm. time as the mm-hmm. commissioner, but they felt as though they were being singled out with police helicopters and stuff flying around the place. How do you send them the message? Look, we're just doing our job. Yeah. This is what we have to do. Mm. This is what's being required of mm. us under whatever the legislation was. Yeah. 
How do you do that and, and, well, and bring actually, that awareness? You know, we actually worked um, with a number of peak groups. So the the Multicultural Advisory Committee, and it's got representatives from various communities, but particularly in Southwest Sydney communities, with them to help us with messaging. We had messaging in multiple languages, and just actually hit the the pavement. And we you know sent cops out delivering hampers. You know, so we actually you know, went out en masse, you know, put extra cops in there to just not to be, you know, show of force, actually, you know, peacekeeping type activity to, to make sure families were getting that access to things they needed. So just being on the front foot around that messaging, and I know some of my region commanders and deputies all went really hard to, you know, try and make sure that that didn't turn the wrong way. You know, it could have, could have gone one of two ways and, you know, there was that, group of LGAs that were affected because of the incidents of COVID in that area or, or whatever the reason was that the health order was put in place. So it's difficult because, you know, our boundaries, aren't, you know, people don't know what our boundaries are and it's not necessarily a neat road. So it's difficult, you know, it's a job for even for the police that I live or work in there or the ones seconded in there and trying to understand, oh, that's that street on that side's the boundary and that one's not. And so it's- It did make sense. No, it was t- it was tricky. It's tricky time. It was orange Very zone well. and red zone. Yeah. But if you go back, and if I go back too, because I yeah. actually had the same relationship in where I grew up. But if you go back to the day when you did your police, uh, your driving test with policemen, yeah. local policemen, and where you came and the area you came from, that view of the police would never have happened back then because that individual had a relationship already with mm. everybody in the town. Yes. Is it a fact or matter that today? It's more difficult to build those relationships just by virtue of sheer numbers of people, particularly in the city or southwest Sydney. I mean, it's just yeah. difficult for police to have a relationship with their community, except when these these things happen. Then you have yeah. to build a relationship. Well, that's that's the worst scenario: is building a relationship in time of crisis. Yeah. You've got to build your relationships before a crisis because that's when you can make those calls and people will rally with you. So one of my priorities is actually connected community and that's right. about connecting at all levels, whether it's my level or constables on the ground, but at local levels so that local commanders and commanders and command teams have forums or mechanisms to understand what their their community wants from them and that will vary community to community. Um, but, you know, they, they in some commands they've existed for years, they just continue to roll and others where they've fallen away, they'll get they'll come back again. But whether it's by geographic area or whether it's by head of profession, meaning domestic violence groups come together and sexual violence and, you know, those retail associations come together to understand, you know, how we reconnect if we've, we've lost that connection and, you know, listen to what their needs are. So what about remoter? Remote yeah. areas, yeah. Like Indigenous remote people. So let's pick Moree, for example, yep. as a, just as a place I know there's a lot of Indigenous people. Mm-hmm. How do you sort of build the relationship up with the community before a problem arises? Yeah. Well, again, we've got police that have been stationed out there and they might come and go over the years but they stay for three or more years. Some stay, they like it and stay but, again, the same principles apply, um, establishing those relationships, getting those people into a room, understanding what their issues are. We, you know, we had a recent coroner's matter up there and, you know, I was concerned that it would, you know, there was tensions that could have boiled over in that community but it was the good work of that officer in charge and her team up there 
they're able to work with the community to make sure that you know they were heard. We managed, you know, their expectations, and you know, you've just that's the way to do it. You've got to have those relationships. You got to just—it's like any relationship. You just got to work on it the whole time. It's interesting you should say that because one of the things that's come out of the death of the Queen Elizabeth yes. is one of the things I've got from it all is how across everything she was, particularly for her age, mm. she was on top of everything. And then I, my only imagination, because I have no insight whatsoever, but my imagination is that she's been continually being briefed on stuff of state mm. matters that relate to her literally all day every day and has been for, had been for 70 years during her reign and never faltered. Not to say you're Queen Queen Elizabeth II, but <laughs> maybe. Um, but your role is about being across every issue of this state mm-hmm. and making sure that the people who brief you brief you in a non-agenda way. Mm-hmm. You know, when as, as this is a time when Karen Webb should step in, mm-hmm. I should be present. Mm-hmm. I should go to Moree, or I should turn up to Broken Hill, or I should turn up to Lismore for the floods, or whatever it is. Is that something that you do? Is that how you operate? Yeah. So I how do you tell us all that? How do you tell us about that? Yeah, we, um, I guess there's a balance between, as I said, probationary constable through to commissioner and I've got deputies, assistant commissioners and commanders have all got responsibility. So there is a a fine line between seeing too much of Karen Webb when it's an issue a deputy could deal with or an assistant commissioner or commander um, that they've all got a role in, in communicating with their communities as well and whatever the issue is you know we, we use all forms of media like our our public affairs unit and our media unit media releases but Facebook and iWatch and all those um, digital means now uh, really have enormous reach so they're ways you know uh, LinkedIn so there's lots of different ways we communicate what's happening in the organization and trying to reach everyone as well as those people that don't have access to digital and we're still reaching in the traditional way. So it's varied, I guess, is the point. Often it's communicate, communicate, communicate um, continually. Do you ever but there's feel, so many things. Do you ever feel yourself, you wake up in the morning and say, wow, I should be maybe putting my face in front of this one because I'm the leader of the organisation. You're our leader too. As a community, yeah, yep. you're our safety leader. Yep. Let's call it that probably other words to describe it, that you're our safety leader. And sometimes we don't want to see too much of you mm. because, it, you know, we might think you're yeah, trying to promote she's yourself. Again. <laughs> yeah, or, but but at the same time yeah. it's a fine balance anyway. It is. It is. And you've got a team of people who advise you these things, mm-hmm. about these things, as did the Queen. Yeah. Um, but the Queen was always very much, in my view, the Queen was the best female CEO of the business of being royal mm. that – the world has ever seen. Yeah. And, and she ran a business. Yeah. A amazing. big enterprise. Mm. And you run a big enterprise. And she was much more experienced at it than you because she was at it for 70 years, if only been at a short period. But is there anything inspirational about how she conducted herself in being the CEO of that big organization that you could draw from? Yeah, I just think, you know, I don't know the Queen. I've had the privilege of meeting King Charles um, when he was in Australia a few years ago. When I look at the Queen, you know, just my assessment, I guess, just based on what I see, very authentic, um, down to earth, still got a sense of humour, 
normal, you know, she's mother, she's, so she's done all of those things and just stayed grounded. And I think I, I try and do that. You know, I'm a mother, I try and be my normal self, um, try and be authentic and be an active listener. And I just, you know, I take, I take in everything, you know, every day, every morning, five o'clock, Bing comes in, what's been happening overnight, five p.m. in the afternoon, briefing for the media unit, eight o'clock briefing every day, you know, so I'm briefed all the time. And that about when I stand up and when I don't, um, it is a fine line because sometimes it's could be dealt with at an assistant commissioner, deputy commissioner level, that's why I have them. Um, and then other times, you know, I'll step in. So it's, it is, and maybe, maybe I'm still learning. And I always say, if I'm not still learning and enjoying this job, then it's time for me to retire. But I'll, I'll be still learning. It's only nine months. So I've still got to find that balance maybe. But I'm not sure it's a, a, a formula. It's just a judgment. It'll become your formula though over time. Yeah, and I'm different. You know, I think every yeah. commissioner, every CEO is different. So I can't be compared to past CEOs. You know, I'll do it my way and I am different. Um, I'll bring something different to the role. and. I've got to manage my time that I'm spending time in my organisation with my people as well as my stakeholders on the outside, my community. So it's just trying to manage what percentage of my time am I devoting to all of those so I have a bit of control over that and otherwise I'm just pushed from here to pillar to post. So just trying to manage what's the right mix because I think it's important that my organisation, my people know that I'm there for them but also got to manage, you know, my board. It's very interesting. I, I, I want to say this to you because time is against us, but as an observation, um, one, I thank you for explaining to us who Commissioner Webb is, okay. the CEO of the organisation, but also showing us Karen Webb at the same time and uh, trying to, because I think that point, you're always learning about your role mm-hmm. and about how to best do it is will get you out of a lot of trouble, so to speak, because people all think that about themselves. I mean, I do, yeah. and I think everybody does. Yeah. Instead of coming to this interview and saying, I know everything and I'm I'm here to kill it, um, that, that's really refreshing and I think that uh, we get confidence out of that. Yeah. And, I th- and I also think the structural part of the business is very important. Yeah. You know, you've got good people to rely on. Mm. As you know, I know some of these individuals and yeah. they're very good people, you know, high-quality individuals and uh, – so I, I, I think from a community's point of view, um, I want to thank you for taking on the role, that's for a start, but putting a female into that role. And I know you, you, know, you just treat everyone the same, but a different point of view is very important for all of us as a community. Yeah. So thanks very much, Commissioner Webb. Thank you. For your very authentic and honest view of Karen Webb. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's been great. Thanks for listening to another episode of Straight Talk with Mark Boris. Audio and production is by Jessica Smalley. Production assistance, Simon McDermott. This is a mentored podcast.